In the summer of 1886, evil stepped into the Inglewood community, a growing suburb of Chicago that flourished with business opportunities due to its proximity to the railroads. Mrs. Holton, wife of a local druggist, moved her overweight 63-year-old body up and down the counter filling orders. Hot and tired, her dress rustled from too much starch every time she moved, bent or stretched, to reach a bottle of tonic. Her gray hair, matted and limped, fell across her flushed face. Her customer, Mrs. McNamara, had flashing red hair and good teeth. It's my boy Johnny. He's feeling poorly. Complains of a bellyache. Would you have something? she asked. Be with you in a second, ma'am, said Mrs. Holton. Busy, her back turned. She checked the shelves for a stomach cure, unaware of a person entering the store. Mrs. Holton wrapped up a mixture in a small paper envelope and handed it her the order. Every now and then, she'd stop and look up toward the ceiling. Closing her eyes with every moan from her sick husband, his pain became a part of her. The pain from the prostate cancer worsened every day. Even the morphine would not hold the pain at bay. Although not a doctor, Mrs. Horton tried to fill the prescription she knew well enough. Otherwise, she would run upstairs and ask her husband for help. Turning, she saw a young man, handsome and fashionably dressed, standing in the door looking over the store. Gold cufflinks adorned his starch white cuffs. His vest suit tailored to fit his small frame gave him an air of elegance and grace. Immediately, he took off his derby hat and nodded when Mrs. Holton noticed him. She nodded back. May I help you? she asked. I am here concerning the position of pharmacist you posted in the daily newspaper. I'm Dr. Holmes. My husband is very ill. He is no longer able to function as a pharmacist. Her voice trailed off as a customer entered the store, pale and in pain. He held his left side, then handed the prescription to her. Mrs. Holton read it and started to go toward the stairs to ask her husband for help. Hesitating, she turned and gave the prescription to Dr. Holmes. He laid his walking stick against the shelf, stepped behind the counter, quickly taking bottles, moving them up and down, gathering materials, grinding powders with the mortar and pestle nimbly shifting the powder into a small envelope, completing the order. Impressed, Mrs. Holton hired him on the spot, never checking his credentials, never knowing how he mixed a prescription poisoning a woman in Philadelphia several months before. Within a short time, the suave, handsome Henry H. Holmes increased the business of the drugstore. He had a way with the ladies that made them come back far too often. This delighted Mrs. Holton, who could spend more time with her dying husband. Holmes took over the books. He understood the lucrative business of selling medicine. He was a godsend for the... When Mrs. Holton's husband died, Holmes saw the opportunity to approach the old woman. You need to rest, he said. Retire from this business. Yes, Mrs. Holton trailed off. But the store, there's so much to do. I can't abandon it. Always tidy, Mrs. Holton busied herself dusting the shelves. Madam, I can buy the business and pay you every month. You would have an income for life without all, all of the work and worry, Holmes said. I could never leave the rooms. I feel Mr. Holton is still in them. So no, Mr. Holmes, I can't sell. My dear woman, Mr. Holmes said as he took her hand and put the duster on the counter. I never want you to leave your rooms. 
My interest is simply in the business. I can stay and you will pay me money. Mrs. Holton smiled and nodded her head. Yes, Mr. Holmes, you can buy my business. She shook his hand, pleased at the great deal she had made. Unfortunately, it would be her last deal. When, when Holmes failed to pay Mrs. Holton the agreed-upon payments, she took him to court. Before the case closed, she disappeared. Customers would ask about her whereabouts, but Dr. Holmes told them that she had moved to California, too distraught after the death of her husband, to live in his rooms. No one knew where she went, and her body was never found. Because the thing about Dr. Holmes is, although he was charming and brought business pharmacy, what Mrs. Holton didn't know is that Dr. Henry Holmes wasn't his real name. It wasn't the first person that he had ever killed, and she certainly wouldn't be the last. And with this, we begin the story of what could be considered one of America's first, if not one of the first, serial killers. This is the story of H.H. Holmes. You are listening to Murder V. Wrote. I'm your host, V. H. Holmes, whose real name was Herman W. Mudgett, was born in 1860 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, where his father was a wealthy and respected citizen and had been the local postmaster for nearly 25 years. Early in life, Mudgett dropped his given name and became known as H. H. Holmes as a name he went under to attend medical school and begin his career in crime. He was constantly in trouble as a boy and a young man, and later in years, was remembered for his cruelty to animals and smaller children. His only redeeming trait was that he was always an excellent student and did well in school. In 1878, Holmes married Clara Lovering, the daughter of a prosperous farmer in Luton, New Hampshire, and that same year began studying medicine at a small college in Burlington, Vermont. He paid his tuition with a tidy legacy that had been inherited by his wife. Even as a student, though, Holmes began to dabble in debauchery. In 1879, he transferred to the medical school of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and while there, devised a method of stealing cadavers from the laboratory. He would then disfigure the corpses and plant them in places where he could look for them as if they had been killed in accidents. Conveniently, Holmes had already taken out insurance policies on these quote-unquote family members, and then he would collect on them as soon as the bodies were discovered. A few months later, after he had completed his most daring swindle, insuring a corpse for $12,500 and carrying out the plan with an accomplice who would later become a prominent doctor in New York, he left Ann Arbor and abandoned his wife and infant son. Claire returned to New Hampshire and never saw her husband again. After that, Holmes dropped out of sight for about six years. What became of him during most of this period is unknown, and later, although we do come across traces of his, of his trail in several cities and states, for a year or so, he was engaged to a legitimate business 
in St. Paul and so gained the respect of the community that he was appointed the receiver of a bankrupt store. He immediately stocked the place with goods, sold them at low prices, and then vanished with the proceeds. From St. Paul, he went to New York and taught school for a time in Clinton County, boarding at the home of a farmer near the village of Moore's Forks. He seduced the farmer's wife and then disappeared one night, leaving an unpaid bill and a pregnant landlady. In 1885, Holmes turned up in Chicago and opened an office in the North Shore suburb of Wilmot. Of Wilmot sorry. Upon his reappearance, Holmes filed for divorce from Clara Levering, but the proceeds were unsuccessful and the case dragged on until about 1891. This did not stop him from marrying another woman, however. Myrtle Z. Belknap, whose father, John Belknap, was a wealthy businessman in Wilmot. Although the marriage did produce a daughter, it was nevertheless a strange one. Myrtle remained living in Wilmot where Holmes, while Holmes began living in Chicago. John Belknap would later discover that Holmes had tried to cheat him out of property by forging his name on deeds. He would also claim that Holmes had tried to poison him when he was confronted about the fraudulent papers. Myrtle ended the marriage about 1889, really was upset by her husband's behavior, so much to the point of a divorce, and she found out that she had become pregnant. While Holmes had made an effort to divorce his first wife, for some reason this marriage was not divorced. So Mudgett was his real name, and Holmes was one of his many aliases. So finally, Holmes, after being tired of what he deemed to be nagging and complaining for Myrtle sent her to live with his parents. Now he was rid of a nosy wife and Holmes had the open field to essentially pursue his evil vices. Benjamin Peitzel of Galville, Illinois, married Carrie Canning after impregnating her at 18. He was a handsome man, over six feet tall with big shoulders and muscular arms. Benjamin cut a good looking figure in those days. His face was fine-featured with light blue eyes, a dignified angular nose, black hair, and a neatly trimmed mustache. His other flaws was a weakness in character. An early marriage, five children, and a slew of jobs that dragged his family from town to town and a particular affection for liquor would change the handsome young man. Benjamin worked as a janitor, a lumber mill worker, a railroad worker, a circus roustabout, and had done several stints in jail for petty crimes. No one knew when Benjamin met H. H. Holmes. Their symbiotic relationship began around November of 1889. Benjamin bound himself to Holmes like a parasite. He fed off Holmes's bigger-than-life persona and gave himself up to his bidding without question and in the process lost his soul. Shortly after, Mrs. Holton, who we talked about at the beginning of our story, went missing across the street from the pharmacy that H.H. Holmes now owned at the disappearance of Mrs. Holton. At 63rd and Wallace, Holmes began construction of a castle. The 50-foot by 162-foot corner lot took on a mystery of its own. When the workers started to ask questions, they were replaced normally within a week or two. In fact, by the end of the construction, over 500 carpenters, laborers, and other craftsmen had been employed which is an amazing fact considering that the building was only three stories. Holmes took advantage of the workers. After they worked a week or two, he accused them of inferior work, fired them, and did not pay them a penny in wages. If they sued, he would ask for one continuance after another until out of frustration, the worker would just give up with no wages paid. 
Holmes had installed an enormous walk-in safe in his office, but stalled in paying. When the safe company sent over a couple of workers to remove the safe, Holmes threatened to sue. He built a room around the safe and warned them that they would pay for any damage. His tactic worked, and the safe stayed. Not only did Holmes cheat workers out of wages, but he also kept them in the dark about the building's design. He didn't want anyone to question the enormous kiln with its cast iron door or the vat of corrosive like quicklime and acid or iron-plated rooms, the secret passages, the hidden hidden chutes that ended in the basement directly above zinc-filled tanks, sealed rooms with gas jets, stairways that led to nowhere, and a secret room that only homes could enter. Fifty-one doors and corridors snaked around like some madhouse with trap doors, closets with secret passages, a dissecting table, surgeon's tools, and even an invention Holmes said could stretch a human to twice their height. Truly, the modern-looking building was a castle of horrors inside. The castle was completed in 1891, and soon after, Holmes announced that he planned to rent out some of the rooms to tourists who would be arriving in mass for the upcoming Columbian Exposition. It was surmised that many of these tourists never returned home after the fair, but no one knows for sure. This was not Holmes's only method of procuring victims, however. A large number of his female victims came through false classified ads that he placed in small-town newspapers that offered jobs to young ladies. When the ads were answered, he would describe several jobs in detail and explain that the woman would have her choice of positions at the time of interview. When accepted, she would then be instructed to pack her things, withdraw all of her money from the bank because she would need funds to get started. The applicants were also instructed to keep the location and name of his company as a closely guarded secret. He told them that he had devious competitors who would use any information possible to steal his clients. When the applicant arrived and Holmes was convinced that she had told no one of her destination, then she would become his prisoner. So I stopped because this is not obviously funny, but it reminds me of the tale of Belle Gunness. When we discussed the Belle Gunness case a few episodes back, she did the same thing with her male counterparts. She would use the classified ads and then when, and then when um, she would have male suitors show up, she would basically write to them and she would be telling them before they came, you know, hey, don't tell anybody you're coming. You know, I want to live with you forever and ever and we're going to be in love and we're going to get married, but take all of your money out of the bank and come here and we'll start our lives together. But please don't tell anybody you're sworn to secrecy about coming here. And what's crazy to me is that none of these people gave it a second thought about taking all of their money out of the bank, packing up all their worldly possessions and then moving to go be with somebody they never met in person and then just didn't tell anyone that they knew or that would be looking for them where they were going. And the insane thing really about this is that I don't think it's really any different from what we do today, right? We don't write letters anymore. Well, some of us do, but we get on social media or Tinder or whatever. And very often people leave double lives. They don't tell their family members or coworkers that they're hooking up with people on the internet and then going to see them. Because if they did, well, then we'd probably have a lot less murders on our hands. So back to Holmes. Holmes would also place newspaper ads for marriages, and he would describe himself as a wealthy businessman who was searching for a suitable wife, much like Bill Gunnis. When they would get there, 
he would get a similar story. Uh, he would give them a similar story about the job offer that he was doing in the classifieds for just regular workers. Um, and then he would torture the women to learn the whereabouts of any valuables that they may have. And then the young ladies would remain prisoners, essentially, in this murder castle until he decided to dispose of them. Holmes was able to keep this murder operation a secret for four years. He slaughtered an unknown number of people, mostly women, in the castle. He would later confess to 28 murders, although the actual number of victims may be higher or lower, depending on who you talk to. To examine the details of the story, you really can't help but be horrified by the amount of planning and devious detail that went into the murders. There's really no questioning the fact that H.H. Holmes is really one of the most prolific and depraved serial killers, honestly, in American history. So now we get to where H.H. Holmes meets Ned Connor. Ned Connor had the same lifestyle as Benjamin Peitzel, who we've already talked about floundering from job to job, dragging his wife and daughter along. When he answered the ad for a manager and got the job, Ned thought all of his problems had ended. He had married Julia Smith, a six-foot-tall, green-eyed woman with reddish-brown hair piled in curls on her head. Holmes noticed her talent for detail and quickly fired his cashier, giving the position to Julia. Thrilled about her good fortune, Julia invited her sister Gertie to Chicago. Gertie was all of 18 with a captivating innocence that caught Holmes at his first meeting. Gertie was flattered by the older man's attention. He whined and dined the young woman and showed her all of the exciting sights of the big city. However, when Holmes professed love for her and told her that he would divorce his wife, she was appalled. Gertie immediately rebu rebuked the offer and confessed to her brother-in-law, Ned. Ned helped her hightail it out, out of the city and back to the small town of Muscatine. Rejected by Gertie, Holmes turned his attention to Julia. In a short time, it was noticeable to people around them that the two had become lovers. And Ned seemed to turn a blind eye to his wife's infidelity and took comfort in the fact that he was working a good job, had a place to stay, after a stream of failures. One day, everything changed when several friends cornered Ned to let him know about his wife's behavior. In a saloon down the street from the castle, Ned slugged back a few after work. This day, some of his bar buddies decided to let him know what everyone else obviously already knew. My wife saw them kissing from the window, one man exclaimed. They didn't even close the door to the back room. Why, I saw him touching her bottom as she stood to get some of those there liver pills I use, said another man. Last week when you were downtown, he closed the shop. I saw both of, both of them get into the cab. Yet another man exclaimed. By the time Ned heard everything, he was pretty liquored up. Slamming down his drink, sending the whiskey splashing all over the bar, he stormed out. Julia opened the door to her room, reached the light, to, reached the light on the gas lamp on the wall. She wore a navy blue dress that curved around her body and ended in a bustle. Her jacket, trimmed in red piping, gave her a smart professional look, and it matched her navy and red hat. Turning around, she was startled to see Ned sitting in a chair by the window. A cloud of smoke obscured his face. Julia walked over to the bed and removed her hat pins, placing them on the night table. Had a talk with some people today, he said. Oh, said Julia, who began unbuttoning her jacket. About what? About my dear, sweet, beautiful wife. He spit out as he put down his pipe and walked to the bed. 
being bedded by my employer. I don't believe I like your tone, Ned. People gossip, ignore them. Ned said no one had to tell me what I already suspected. I wanted to believe it was innocent flirting. Holmes is a destroyer of marriage. He wanted to divorce his wife for your sister. You were just second best. She whipped around and faced Ned. He loves me. He's handsome, successful, intelligent, caring, everything you aren't. You couldn't shine his shoes, Ned Connor. I forbid you to see him again. You will quit the job and be my wife. You don't have to work. Never see Holmes again. To which Julia replied, I will not quit my job and I will not stop seeing Holmes. This fight went on for hours and resulted in Ned packing up and sleeping on the floor of the barbershop downstairs. Julia continued her affair with Holmes and inevitably became pregnant. By that time, Ned had moved out of the castle, filed for divorce, and was about to marry another woman. Julia had entrenched herself into Holmes's business so deeply that she had become a threat. He convinced her that she was the love of his life and wanted to marry her only if she had an abortion. When she thought of her daughter Pearl, she could not bring herself to do it. But Holmes persisted and assured Julia that he had performed many such procedures during his time as a medical student. Julia kept putting it off. Finally, on December 24, 1891, Julia agreed to the abortion. Too upset to put Pearl to bed, she asked Holmes to do it. Afterwards, he led her down to the dark basement and makeshift operating room. Gripping his arm and sobbing, she had no idea that she would never see another Christmas again. And neither did Pearl. This is when we come to Holmes's medical skeleton business. Charles M. Chapel worked for Holmes doing a variety of jobs around the castle for about two years. His previous job was in the same building that housed the Bennett Medical School. Curious by nature and good with his hands, Chapel picked up a rather unusual skill, articulating skeletons. He first observed the procedure, and after a short time, he actually did the work. And in winter of 1892, a few months after the disappearance of Julia, Holmes summoned Chapel to his office. Charles, would you like to pick up some extra money? asked Holmes. Charles stood in front of the desk and smiled. Why, of course, Mr. Holmes. I would like to use your special skills to articulate a skeleton. Holmes led Chapel to a second floor room with poor lighting. On a table, a cadaver of a female lay. Chapel told authorities later that the body looked like a jackrabbit that had been skinned by splitting the skin down the face and rolling it back off the entire body. He also said considerable flesh had been taken off. Chapel thought Holmes was doing an autopsy on one of his patients. After stripping the flesh off and articulating the bones, the body was prepared. Chapel was paid $36 for his work and he left. The skeleton was then sold to Hanneman Medical College for $200. Dr. Pauling, a surgeon, had the skeleton placed in his private offices in his home. Looking at the skeleton, he often wondered what had taken her life. Consumption? Childbirth? A bad heart? Fascinated with the skeleton, Dr. Pauling would often show visitors unusual female skeleton that was over six feet tall. Emmeline Sigrand was a stenographer in her hometown of Lafayette, Indiana, at the county recorder office. In 1891, she began working in Dwight, Illinois, home of a sanitarium for alcoholics. Dr. Keeley, the director, 
had discovered a treatment for alcoholism by giving injections of bichloride of gold and a mixture of gold salts and vegetables. I always laugh because as horrible as it seems, they were doing medicine at a time where they really didn't know if any of this shit worked, right? So it's amazing that there aren't more dead people simply off the strength of doctors doing things like injecting you with gold salts and and, and vegetables. If I, for some reason, get sick or become an alcoholic, please don't insult, don't inject me with gold salt and vegetables. I'm begging you. Emmeline's stunning beauty caught the eye of Benjamin Peitzel, a patient in for this cure. Tall and blonde with piercing blue eyes and a captivating smile, Emmeline fascinated Peitzel. Emmeline enjoyed conversations with Peitzel about his job and his interesting, wealthy employer, Dr. Holmes. Intrigued with Peitzel's description, Holmes wrote Emmeline, enticing her with a job paying over 50% more than the sanitarium. She accepted the job working for Holmes and lived in a boarding house one block from his murder castle. Holmes then began his seduction. Sightseeing, flowers, dinner, jewelry, and compliments. By summer, they were lovers, and Emmeline had written back home about her fiancé, Robert E. Phelps, an alias Holmes told her to use so as not to jeopardize his imminent divorce from Myrta. Um, Emmeline wrote to her sister Philomena that they might be moving to England to share an estate with her beloved's father, an English lord. In the fall, Emmeline's relatives arrived. Holmes, conveniently busy, did not meet with them. One of them pointed out the poor workmanship of the building and the inferior quality of the lumber that was used. But Emmeline did not want to hear any disparaging remarks about her perfect love, so she ignored the suggestions that Holmes was not what he appeared to be. Holmes planned the wedding for December, a civil ceremony with just his witness. Simple, quick, and then a long trip aboard so I may spend many nights and all of my time with you, and only you, Holmes said. It will be beautiful no matter where we wed because I'll be with you, Emmeline said. Her eyes traced his face. Holmes pulled back from there, braced, reached in his inner pocket, and presented her with 12 envelopes. Address these, my dear, with your beautiful handwriting to all the family and friends back home. I have ordered printed announcements of our wedding etched in gold. Holmes planned to kill her, not for money, but for lust. Only in a dead state could he achieve the ultimate sexual thrill. In early December, probably a few days before the wedding, Holmes summoned Emmeline. He sat at his desk, paper stacked, looking busy. My dear, can you fetch me the white envelope in the vault marked property deeds? Of course, Emmeline said. She unspun the lock and stepped into the vault. Standing on her tiptoes, she slid her hand back and forth across the shelf as she looked for the envelope. The light from the other room dimmed. She did not hear Holmes walk up to the vault door. She also didn't notice the door slowly begin to close until darkness surrounded her. Then and only then did Emmeline freeze as the vault door shuttered closed, the lock spun, and the room became her tomb. Holmes stood near the vault, excited at what he had done. He pressed his cheek against the cold metal, feeling the coolness and the tiny thumps on the door as Emmeline pounded for her life. Emmeline's screams were deep and guttural. Holmes felt their vibration against his groin as he pressed against the door. Aroused by the power of life and death, he exposed himself and masturbated as he listened to Emmeline's screams. 
His eyes glazed in ecstasy as he chewed on his lower lip and jerked vigorously to the ultimate climax as she screamed to death. Holmes went back to work, occasionally listening to Emmeline's screams, which, according to Holmes, continued for hours. Several weeks after the incident, LaSalle Medical School bought a skeleton from Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, a young female. One of the requirements of employment with Holmes was a life insurance policy for $5,000, naming Holmes as the beneficiary. This money was put in the bank in case his other swindles slacked off. When Jenny Thompson, 17, a blonde, blue-eyed, small-town girl from El Dorado, Illinois, came to work in the castle, Holmes found another opportunity. Jenny confided in Holmes that she had not written her family. Originally, she told the family she was going to New York to live. They had no idea that she had landed such a good job in Chicago. Again, he used the vault trick. Jenny suffocated in the vault. Her body was stripped of flesh, skeletonized, and sold to the University of Illinois Medical School. Another victim, Mrs. Pansy Lee, a widow from New Orleans, took a room in the castle. Holmes used his usual charm after learning Pansy had $4,000 in a false bottom of her trunk. He asked her to let him put it in his vault for safekeeping. Pansy refused, insisting that she could take care of the money as she had done traveling all over the United States. Holmes killed her and cremated her body in his custom-built oven. Holmes's ever-faithful dog, Pat Quinlan, got a girl that worked at the castle in trouble. His wife lived in Ohio, but she planned on joining her husband at the castle sometime in the future. Heated arguments with his mistress made Quinlan confide in Holmes about his problem. Can you deliver the baby, Dr. Holmes? I need to keep this quiet so the missus don't find out, said Quinlan. His eyes were tired. His thin nose flared, lifting his mustache with each heavy breath. Quinlan's agitation grew as Holmes struck his chin and stared at the strop man before him. I'll do anything I can, said Holmes, smiling and patting him on his back. Shortly after Holmes offered to help, Pat again found himself in a state of panic. Clutching a telegram, Pat paced back and forth in front of his boss's desk. Handing Holmes the telegraph, he stepped back, hands in his pockets waiting for the response. There's something else, sir, besides my missus coming today. The girl knows and threatened to tell my wife. You know what must be done, Pat. Pat hung his head and said yes. Quinlan, unable to look Holmes in the eye, cleared his throat. One more problem. The girl told her sister. Holmes replied, that makes one for each of us to take care of, doesn't it, Pat? Quinlan looked up. Sadness filled his eyes. I can't possibly. Holmes's icy stare made Quinlan's words dissolve into fear. I mean, whatever you say, Mr. Holmes. That day, Quinlan brought the two women to a small room in a remote part of the building, explaining that his mistress and his sister, that the room would be better for the baby so the child's crying would not disturb other tenants. He left the two women and met Holmes in the basement. The two men turned on the vigorous gas jets to the room. Within a few minutes, the two sisters were dead, and their bodies were disposed of in the usual manner. H.H. Holmes was a murderer, for sure, but before he was a murderer, H.H. H. Holmes was simply a con man.
of the highest order. He went from state to state and city to city selling fake cures to things. For instance, very early in his life, after he graduated from medical school, smallpox became a, a, a pandemic in the United States. And H.H. Holmes was accused of selling fake tonics and vaccines and elixirs to cure smallpox when they didn't cure anything at all. So in the grand scheme of things, long before he ever became a murderer, he was guilty of <laughs> essentially being a steak oil salesman and committing insurance fraud. And the one thing that con artists all have in common is the power of persuasion to swindle their victims. The most successful con artists exhibit three similar characteristics, psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism, which has been referred to by psychologists as dark personality traits. These characteristics allow con artists to swindle people out of their money without feeling any real remorse or guilt. Another thing most con artists have in common are their egos. These extortion salespeople boost the psyche of the perpetrators and make them feel even more confident. Thus, the description of a con has been termed as a confidence game. With each person that they swindle, they feel more and more like they are able to pull this off and they gain more confidence in their ability to keep up the swindle. Based on the information that H.H. Holmes provided about his behavior. He would be, I think, diagnosed in current times with antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and according to the DSM-5, the criteria for antisocial personality disorder is as follows. A pattern of disregard for others starting at a young age. We know that H.H. Holmes exhibited this. He hated children, um, which may explain why some of his murders, simply because he had a underlying disdain for children uh deceitfulness used aliases cons others for profit he obviously has been doing that from the very beginning a lack of remorse a failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors is indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are the grounds for arrest that would be the murders the not paying contractors the swindling people out of their money Antisocial behavior is not due to another mental disorder such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. That is to say that this, these certain behaviors are attributed or can be observed on their own separate from this person having schizophrenia or bipolar or something else that may contribute to these behaviors. According also to the DSM-5, the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder is as follows. A lack of empathy, which... If you kill that many people in a murder castle, I would have to agree that you lack empathy. A preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited power, success, and brilliance, which seems to describe Holmes. A high sense of self-importance, which may explain why he was so quick to tell his perceived marks or these women that he was swindling, things like he was nobility and that his father was a duke or a baron in England or that he was this great businessman or that he was this cunning and resourceful and amazing doctor. A sense of entitlement, which plays into the fact that he certainly felt that he should be able to kill people with impunity and then take their money. Interpersonally exploitative, which means he 
essentially used interpersonal connections with people that he knew and essentially gained their confidence and trust and respect because of their personal relationship and was able to swindle them that way. While reading about H.H. Holmes, a thing that stuck out to me was his belief in polygamy. And I could assume that he chose to live his wife this way because he always wanted to have more. He would have first heard of this in the Bible because his mother was very religious. And how he grew up and what he was taught plays a significant part in the type of person that he developed into. Although the risk factors for antisocial personality disorder are typically genetic and physiological, there's not really enough information about H.H. Holmes's parents to determine whether or not both or one of his parents had the disorder. The DSM-5 states antisocial behavior may be a part of a protective survival strategy. Both of these disorders are seen more in males than they are in women, further confirming this guest diagnosis. As a child, Holmes witnessed violence because his father would beat him, and that was also a traumatic experience that played a role in who he became. Growing up, he had no real friends. He struggled in relationships, and I believe that it caused him to act out in such a way that helped him survive. His violent attitudes and experimenting on animals became sort of a pleasure and an outlet for his rage and displeasure with where he was in life. His behavior was also erratic, but he didn't see actions as seriously as they actually were. So for him, yeah, he murdered a cat, but it really wasn't that big deal. Or yeah, I killed this woman and her kids, but not a big deal. He never looked at art or even to a lesser extent before the murders, you know, hey, I stole these cadavers and then pretended to find them and insured them as if they were family members, which for the rest of us would be something appalling, but to him just seemed like a means to an end. He didn't think of it as anything that was seriously breaking the law. I think he never witnessed what real love was from his parents, so although he was smart, he was groomed to be cold and aloof to people. Everything about him was calculated from the aliases to building a, a, a murder castle by using 500 different contractors and workmen so that no one knew what was going on, and very reserved, very calm, very cool. And he learned how to be this way because he had such an, upheld, an unhealthy upbringing that had to be kept a secret because of the family's reputation. And he continued to disguise these parts of him all through adulthood, essentially grooming him and turning him into a menacing, psychotic serial killer. Now that we've talked a bit about what makes H.H. H. Holmes ticks, or to the best of our knowledge, because... Let's face it, none of us can dig him up to ask questions about what he did or thought, and most of what we know about him comes from his own autobiography and own admissions once he was captured. In the midst of his murderous pursuits as a hotel keeper, um, Holmes met a lady named Minnie Williams about 1893. He told her that his name was Harry Gordon and that he was a wealthy investor. Holmes' interest in her had been piqued when he learned that she was heir to a Texas real estate fortune. She was in Chicago working as an instructor for a private school, and it wasn't long before her and Holmes were engaged to be married. This was a turn of events that did not make anyone happy, um, but as H.H. H. Holmes would later say that this is about the time that he was done with Julia and he later admits to murdering her, he says, but I would have gotten rid of her anyway. I was tired of her. 
Minnie Williams was living at the castle for more than a year, and she knew about Holmes's crimes really more than any other person. Police investigators would state later that there was no way she could not have had guilty knowledge about many of the murders. Besides being ultimately responsible for the deaths of Julia and Pearl Connor, Minnie was also believed to have been instigated. Minnie is believed to have instigated the murder of Emily Van Tassel, a young lady who lived on Roby Street. She was only 17 and worked at the candy store on the first floor of the castle. There is no indication of what caused her to catch the eye of Holmes, but she vanished just one month after his offer of employment. Minnie also knew about the murder of Emmeline Sigrand, a beautiful young woman who worked as a stenographer at the Keeley Institute in Dwight, Illinois. We know about her. We've already kind of talked about her. Uh, Emmeline, it turns out, had become homesick after a few weeks in Chicago and that she had was going to marry a man in Indiana named Robert E. Phelps. So uh, Holmes confessed later that he had locked the girl in one of the soundproof rooms and raped her. And then he said that he confessed and said he killed her because Minnie Williams objected to him lusting after the attractive some woman. Sometime later, Robert Feltz made the mistake of dropping by to inquire after young Emmeline, Sigr- Emmeline Sengrand. And that was when Holmes decided that he would kill Robert Phelps as well. Holmes described a stretching experiment with is which he used to kill Phelps. Also curious about the amount of punishment the human body could withstand, Holmes often used the dissecting table on live victims. He invented a rack-like device that would literally stretch a person to the breaking point. In April of 1893, Minnie's property in Texas was deeded to a man named Benton T. Lyman, who was a real who was in reality Ben Peitzel the already mentioned accomplice of Holmes. Later that same year, Minnie's brother was killed in a mining accident in Colorado, which was said to have been arranged by Holmes. As Minnie's case, it was even easier to manage her complicity. Apparently in June 1893, according to Holmes, Minnie had accidentally killed her sister, Nanny, after a heated argument. She had hit the other girl over the head with a chair and she died. Holmes had protected Minnie by dropping the body into Lake Michigan, is what he claims. Some believe that Minnie had not killed her sister at all, but had merely stunned her with the chair. And it had been Holmes who finished the woman off and gained himself yet another accomplice in the process. A short time later, Holmes and Minnie traveled to Denver in the company of another young woman, Georgiana Yoke, who had come to Chicago from Indiana with a quote-unquote tarnished reputation. She had applied for a job at the castle, and Holmes told her his name was Henry Howard and that Minnie was his cousin. On January 17, 1984, Holmes and Georgiana were married at the Vendom Hotel in Denver with Minnie as their witness. After that, the wedding party, which apparently consisted of the three of them, traveled to Texas where they claimed Minnie's property and arranged a horse swindle. Holmes purchased several railroad cars of horses with counterfeit banknotes and signed the papers as O.C. Pratt. The horses were then shipped to St. Louis and sold. Holmes made off with the fortune, but it would be this swindle that would later come back to destroy him. Now, I will take a pause here to point out that if you are keeping track, this has got to be like the fourth or fifth person that he married. The only legal person that he's married to is Clara, and then there was Myrtle, and then there was julia who he wanted to marry and then there was Minnie, and then there was also now georgiana so we're on like the fifth person and that's 
insane that I guess none of these women asked about the other women and he's had so many aliases that I can't even imagine how difficult it was to keep track. But the other part that's missing from this is that Minnie seems to know about all of the murders and all of the polygamy and doesn't care. And that is fascinating to me. I really wish in doing more research for this that I would have been able to find more information about Minnie because I think it's it's truly crazy that when you talk about the scope of these murders that he was committing, that there shouldn't be more people that would be tried as accomplices because surely he wasn't able to pull a lot of this off by himself. But from what it was seen that none of these other parties were charged. So back to... Georgiana and Minnie and H.H. Holmes. After they pull off this horse swindle, the threesome returns to Chicago and their return marked the last time that Minnie was ever seen alive. Although her body was never found, it was believed to have joined the other victims in the acid vat in the basement. Holmes continued to kill, claiming several victims. In 1894, Holmes was arrested for the first time. It was not for murder but for one of these schemes the earlier hearse horse swindle that had ended in st louis georgiana promptly bailed him out but while in jail he struck up a conversation with a convicted train robber named marion hedgepeth who was serving a 25-year sentence holmes had concocted a plan to bilk an insurance company out of twenty thousand dollars by taking out a policy on himself and then faking his death Holmes promised Hedgepeth a $500 commission in exchange for the name of a lawyer who could be trusted. Hedge, so basically what happens is Holmes has a conference with Benjamin Peitzel and, Dep, and Jephthah Howe, his new lawyer, and his new plan was put into action. Peitzel went to Philadelphia with his wife, Carrie, and opened a shop for buying and selling patents with the name B.F. Perry. Holmes then took out an insurance policy on his life. The plan was for Peitzel to drink a potion that would knock him unconscious. Then Holmes would apply makeup to his face and make it look as though he was severely burned. A witness would then summon the ambulance, and when they were gone, Holmes would put a corpse in place of the shopkeeper. The insurance company would be told that he had died. Peitzel would then receive a portion of the money in exchange for his role in the swindle, but he would soon learn, as so many others already had, that Holmes simply could not be trusted. The plan was for after this for Ben to go into hiding and not tell his family anything. But Ben could not just disappear without saying something to his wife, Carrie. So he went against Holmes's instructions and told her about the scheme. Carrie, distraught that something could go wrong, begged her husband to reconsider, but he didn't. He told his older daughter, Nessie, not to believe anything she read in the newspaper about him. And Ben Peitzel left for Chicago and never returned. Meanwhile, Holmes's creditors got wind of the arson at the castle. They banded together, got an attorney, and threatened Holmes with criminal charges. On November 22nd, according to the witnesses, was the last time anyone saw Holmes in public, although he did make a few clandestine visits to his wife and daughter. On the morning of September 4th, once the scheme was in place, Ben Peitzel and H.H. Holmes met in Philadelphia to set up the appointment and canceled, well, Ben canceled, when Holmes did not like the meeting place. Holmes then asked Ben if they could meet at his room, and Ben agreed. This would be the last agreement Ben would ever make to his trusted employer. The next night, Holmes watched Ben from the shadows drink himself into oblivion at a local tavern. 
He followed his drunken friend back to his room, checking his pocket for the tools of his murderous plan, and waited for the right moment. When Ben opened his door after several tries, Holmes jumped from the shadows and chloroformed him, gently allowing the body to slip to the floor. Working quickly, he took a vial of chemicals from his pocket and poured it on Ben's face. A small explosion ensued, obliterating Ben's features. He then arranged the body so that the face would get the full glare of the sun, thus ensuring quick decomposition. Holmes's medical training came in handy once more. Ben had missed an appointment with one of his potential investors. The man had come by the shop a few times and felt concerned because it was always closed. Finally, he pushed the door of the shop open and it opened, and he called for Ben several times. Cautiously, he went toward the back of the store and reached the stairs to the upper rooms, and he noticed a foul odor. Up, up he went until he arrived at the top floor. He opened the door slightly, saw a body on the floor, shot down the stairs, and ran four blocks to the police station. Holmes lost no time at all. He returned to Georgiana at the rented rooms and told her the deal had gone through and they should make $10,000. Next morning, they boarded a train for Indianapolis and spent a short time in the city. He checked newspapers to see if Ben's death had been discovered. A few days after arriving, he saw the notice. Holmes was disguised, that was delighted that his scheme was working. He said goodbye to his wife and headed back to St. Louis. Carrie Peitzel boarded on hysteria when she read about the story about Ben's death in Philadelphia. Her daughter, Desi, tried to claim her down by reminding her what her father said, not to believe what was in the newspapers. Holmes's arrival at that moment would not have been timed better. Finding Carrie in a state of collapse, he pulled her into a private room and chided her for believing Ben's death notice. He's hiding out and you must play along. This is what Ben wants. He is not dead. After a while, she believed his smooth-talking manner and calmed down. Holmes was worried that Carrie would crack. Also, she and the baby had been terribly ill for several days. He knew that in this state, she would blow the whole scheme. He convinced her to take Alice, even though she was only 15 years old. Desi, the oldest, had to take, stay and take care of the baby while the mother was ill. Alice would be needed to identify the body in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Holmes and Alice went to the insurance company. Carrie Peitzel gave power of attorney to Holmes. The power with the insurance company was that Ben had used, an in, used a fictitious name, so they needed more positive identification. Days had passed since Ben's death. He'd already been buried. An order of exhumation was filled to allow the positive identification. Fidelity agents felt like something was, was suspicious, but chose not to pursue it at that time. According to police report, the death was an accident. What alerted agents is what had to do with the fact that Ben had made his payment two days before he died by wiring it into the office last minute. Alice looked so impoverished and pitiful when she arrived at the office that agents didn't have the heart to pursue the investigation. The coroner laid out the exhumed body of Ben Peitzel, covering his badly disfigured face. Alice, frightened and nervous, clutched Holmes for moral support. Any distinguishing marks? asked the coroner of Alice. My father had a scar on his knee, Alice said, and the coroner pulled back cover to expose his knees and a mole on his neck. Both times she nodded yes. That's my papa. I can tell by his hands, she cried. Holmes lifted the covering on Ben's face. Yes, that is Ben Peitzel, who has worked for me. When the identification was over, Holmes took Alice to Indianapolis, leaving her there while he returned to St. Louis. In Detroit, a house that Holmes rented was still vacant, and a large hole was found to be dug in the cellar floor.
Geyer was relieved to discover that it was empty. In Toronto, the Pinkerton detective searched for eight days before he found the cottage at number 16 Vincent Street that had been rented to a man fitting Holmes's description. The man had been traveling with two little girls. Holmes borrowed a shovel from a neighbor, which he claimed he wanted to use to dig a hole to store potatoes in. Geyer borrowed the same spade and went digging in the same location and found the bodies of Nellie and Alice Peitzel several feet under the earth. In an upstairs bedroom, he found a large trunk that had been that had a piece of rubber tubing leading into it from a gas pipe. He had told the girls that he wanted to play hide-and-seek with them, trick them into climbing into the trunk, and then has, had asphyxiated them. This shocking discovery made Geyer work even harder to find what had become of Howard Peitzel. When questioning the neighbors, he learned that the Peitzel girls had told them that they had a brother who was living in Indianapolis. With this small clue, Geyer went to Indiana and painstakingly searched 900 houses for any clue of Holmes. Finally, in the suburb of Irvington, he found a house that Holmes had rented for a week. The place had been empty since Holmes's occupancy, and in the kitchen stove, Geyer found the charred remains of Howard Peitzel. Now the door was open for Geyer and Chicago detectives to search Holmes's residence in the Windy City. Geyer was sure that the remaining answers that he was seeking could be found inside the murder castle. He entered the place with several police officers, and neither Geyer nor the veteran investigators would ever forget what they found there. Detectives devoted several weeks of searching and making floor plans of the castle. The bottom floor had been used himself as a drugstore, a candy store, a restaurant, and a jewelry store. Third floor of the building had been divided into small apartments and guest rooms and apparently had never been used. The second floor, however, proved to be a labyrinth of narrow, winding passages with doors that opened to brick walls and hidden stairways, cleverly concealed doors, blind hallways, secret panels, hidden passages, and of course the vault with, that was only big enough for a person to stand in. The room was allegedly to be made a homemade gas chamber equipped with a chute that would carry a body directly into the basement. The investigators suddenly realized that the implications of the iron plaid chamber when they found the single scuff mark of a footprint on the inside of the door. It was a small print that had been made by a woman who had attempted to escape the grim fate of the tiny room. In addition to all of the bizarre additions to the floor, the second level also held 35 guest rooms. Half of them were fitted as ordinary sleeping quarters, but there were indications that it had been occupied by various women who worked for Holmes, by tenants of the fair, or by luckless females Holmes had seduced while waiting on an opportunity to kill them. Several of the other rooms were without windows or could be made airtight by closing the doors. Others were lined with sheet iron and asbestos with scorch marks on the wall, fitted with trap doors that led to smaller rooms beneath, or were equipped with lethal, lethal gas jets that could be used to suffocate or burn the unsuspecting occupants. This floor also contained Holmes's private apartment consisting of a bedroom, a bath, and two small chambers that were used as offices. The apartment was located at the front of the building, looking out over 63rd Street. In the floor of the bathroom, concealed under a heavy rug, the police found a trap door and a stairway that descended into a room about eight feet square. Two doors led off this chamber, one to a stairway that exited out onto the street, and the other giving access to the chute that led down to the basement. The chamber of horrors in the basement stunned the men even further. 
Here they found this, they found Holmes's blood-spattered dissecting table and his macabre laboratory of torture devices, sharpened instruments, and various jars of poison. They also found the acid vat and the crematorium, which still contained ash and portions of bone that had not been burned in the intense heat. A search of the ashes also revealed a watch that had belonged to Minnie Williams, some buttons from a dress, and several charred tin-type photographs. Under the staircase, Geyer also found a ball made from women's hair that had been carefully wrapped in cloth. Buried in the floor, the police found a vat of corrosive acid, two quicklime pits, which were capable of devouring an entire body in a matter of hours. A loose pile of quicklime was also discovered in a small room that had been built into the corner. The naked footprint of a woman was found embedded in the pile. Dozen of hum dozens of human bones and several pieces of jewelry were found and could be traced to Holmes's mistresses. A wood-burning stove in the center of the basement contained scraps of cloth, and Ned Connor was summoned to the castle to identify a bloody dress that had belonged to Julia. In a hole in the middle of the floor were more bones. After being examined by a physician, they were believed to be the bones of a small child between the ages of six and eight. The fate of Pearl Connor was no longer in question. On July 20th, some city workers began excavating the cellar and started a tunnel underneath 63rd Street. The hazy smell of gas hung in the air as the men tore away one wall and they discovered a large tank or metal lined chamber. As soon as they broke through, the basement was filled with the stench of death driving the crew back. Noting the metal lining of the tank, they sent for a plumber and he struck a match to peer inside of it. Suddenly, the tank exploded, shaking the building and sending flames out into the basement. The men were buried in piles of debris, but no one was seriously injured. The tank was lined with wood and metal and was 14 feet long, although thanks to the explosion, no one will ever know what it was used for. The only clue in the room was a small box that was found in its center. When it was reportedly opened by Fire Marshal James Kenyon, an evil-smelling vapor rushed out. The gathered men ran except for Kenyon, who was overpowered by the stench. According to the New York, New York World, he was dragged out and carried upstairs and for two hours acted like one demented. Following the excavation and the discovery of the cataloging of Holmes's potential victims, the murder castle, as it began to be called, sat empty for several months. Not surprisingly, it drew onlookers and curiosity seekers from all over the city. The newspapers were not yet filled with stories and illustrations of Holmes's devious crimes, but rumors had quickly spread about what had been discovered there. The people of Chicago were stunned that such things could take place and in their glorious city. The people of the Inglewood neighborhood watched the sightseers with a combination of fear and loathing, sickened over the terrible things that brought the crowds to their streets. Then, on August 19th, the castle burned to the ground. Three explosions thundered through the neighborhood just after midnight, and minutes later, a blaze erupted from the abandoned structure. In less than an hour, the roof had caved and the walls began to collapse onto themselves. A gas cannon was discovered among the smoldering rumor, ruins, and rumors argued back and forth between an accomplice of Holmes's burning down the house to hide his role in the horror and the arson being committed by an outraged neighbor. The mystery was never solved, but regardless, the castle was gone for good, although many would claim that its memories would linger. The trial of Herman Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. H. Holmes, began in Philadelphia just before Halloween of 1895. It only lasted for six days, but one of one of the most sensational things in the country. 
The newspapers reported it in a lurid and sensational manner, and besides the mysteries of the castle to report on, which were reported at length by several witnesses, Holmes created many exciting scenes in the courtroom. He broke down and wept when Georgiana took the stand as a witness for the state and eventually discharged his attorneys and attempted to conduct his own his own defense. It was said that Holmes was actually outstanding, clever, and shrewd as an attorney, but it was to no avail. The jury deliberated for just two and a half hours before returning a guilty verdict. Afterward, they reported they had agreed on the verdict in just one minute, but had remained out longer, quote, for the sake of appearances. On November 30th, the judge passed a sentence of death. His case was appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, who affirmed the verdict, and the governor refused to intervene. Holmes was scheduled to die on May 7th, 1896, just nine days before his 36th birthday. H.H. H. Holmes remained unrepentant even at the end. Just before his execution, he visited with two Catholic priests in his cell and even took communion with them, although refused to ask forgiveness for his crimes. He was led from his cell to the gallows, and a black hood was placed over his head. The trap door beneath him opened, and Holmes quickly dropped. His head snapped to the side, but his fingers clenched and his feet danced for several minutes afterward, causing many spectators to look away. Although the force of the fall had broken his neck, and the rope had pulled so tight that it literally embedded him in, his, in its flesh, his heart continued to beat for nearly 15 minutes. He was finally declared dead at 10.25 a.m. on May 7, 1986. There are a couple of macabre legends associated with Holmes's execution. One story claimed that a lightning bolt had ripped through the sky at the precise moment that the, the rope had snapped his neck. But this was not the strangest one. The most enduring supernatural legend of H.H. Holmes's death is that of the Holmes curse. The story began shortly after his execution, leading to ex speculation that his spirit did not rest in peace which why should it but i digress some believe that he was still carrying on his gruesome work from beyond the grave and even to the skeptical some of the events that took place after his death are a bit concerning if you like that kind of thing so a short time after holmes's body was buried under two tons of concrete the first strange death occurred the first to die was Dr. William K. Matten, a coroner's physician who had been a major witness in the trial. He suddenly dropped dead from blood poisoning. More deaths followed in rapid order, including that of the head coroner, Dr. Ashbridge, and the trial judge who had sentenced Holmes to death. Both men were diagnosed with sudden and previously unknown deadly illnesses. Next, the superintendent of the prison where Holmes had been incarcerated committed suicide. The reason for him taking his own life was never discovered. Then the father of one of Holmes's victims was horribly burned in a gas explosion, and the remarkably healthy Pinkerton agent, Frank Geyer, suddenly became ill. Not long after, the office of the claims manager for the insurance company that Holmes had cheated caught fire and burned. Everything in the office was destroyed except for a framed copy of Holmes's arrest warrant and two portraits of the killer. Many of those who were already convinced of a curse saw this as an ominous warning. Several weeks after the hanging, one of the priests who prayed with Holmes before his execution was found dead in the yard behind his church. The coroner ruled the death as rheumic poisoning, but according to reports, he had been badly beaten and robbed. A few days later, Linford 
Linford Biles, who had been the jury foreman in Holmes, in Holmes' trial, was electrocuted in a bizarre accident involving the electrical wires above his home. In the years that followed, others involved with Holmes also met violent deaths, including the train robber Marion Hedgepeth. He remained in prison after his informing on Holmes, although he had expected a pardon that never came. On the very day of Holmes's execution, he was transferred to the Missouri State Prison to finish out his sentence. As time passed, Hedgebeth gained many supporters to his cause, including several newspapers who wrote his whole of getting wrote of his role in getting Holmes prosecuted. In 1906, he finally got his pardon and was released. Despite the claims that he had made about his rehabilitation, including that he spent each day in prison reading his Bible, Hedgepeth was arrested in September of 1907 for blowing up a safe in Omaha, Nebraska. He was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. He was released, however, when it was discovered that he was dying from tuberculosis. In spite of his medical condition, he assembled a new gang and at midnight on New Year's Eve 1910 attempted to rob a saloon in of all places, Chicago. As he was placing the money from the till in a burlock bag, a policeman wandered into the place and for no reason, other than he just was in the right place at the right time, I guess, wandered in and shot Marion Hedgepeth. Hedgepeth was dead before he hit the floor. So some people would say that perhaps H.H. Holmes got his revenge after all. Huh. <sighs> Take a deep breath, shake it out. We're done with H.H. Holmes. We did it. One of America's most prolific and earliest serial killers. There's so much information out there about H.H. Holmes that it's really hard to distinguish fact from fiction. So I'm hoping that I get a good job and that you guys really kind of get a clear picture. Um, there is a really good documentary that I believe is on Amazon Prime about H.H. Holmes and the Murder Castle that I found information from that was really, really helpful. Plus, it's just a really awesome watch and it's fascinating. So if you're into that kind of thing and you like old-timey murders, definitely check it out. I don't think I have anything to plug this week. Um, as usual, coming up um, this Sunday coming up, I will be with... Um, Chris and Penrose again for All Docked Up. I'm really excited about this week because we're covering um, Malice at the Palace. Uh, we're covering Untold Malice at the Palace that's on Netflix. It's a really great watch if you're into sports. We all kind of remember that um, Pistons-Pacers game and the brawl that ensued. Um, and it kind of gives you the untold story behind that from the views of the players involved. Um, I thought it was very wonderful. So if you have time and you're looking for something to watch, definitely check that out. Um, also, there should be a new episode of Chopping It Up with Q and VJ that should be out tomorrow or Wednesday. You can check us out there. Um, that's at Chopping It Up with Q podcast and All Docked Up podcast. Um, so Chopping It Up with Q, we talked about a bunch of silly things. We tried to keep it light. Um, we did have a deep foray, a foray into... Um, the laws that Texas has on the books now, including um, the open carry law and the heartbeat bill that passed recently, um, and just our thoughts on it as people, as fellow Texans, as as citizens of the world, we kind of wanted to talk about that and just kind of give our perspectives and thoughts on it. So you guys can check that out as well, and I hope you enjoy. Um, podcast pick of the week, or shall I say podcast spotlight, 
Um, what is the podcast spotlight of the week? I know I had it. So I don't think I have a podcast spotlight of the week, but there is something that I want you to check out. They don't have a podcast, but they do do um, a live show on IG. It is the ladies Jackie and Nick. Um, they do keep it 100 that goes live every wednesday i believe i will check that and if i am wrong i'm so sorry ladies but i will put the information in the show notes and make sure that i tweet about it as well um but you guys should definitely check that out uh keep it 100 starring jackie and nick they go live on instagram and they just talk about life and love and relationships and everything that you need to know as a single lady or just a person and if you enjoy a good time with two dazzlingly beautiful smart funny witty women who are just kind of doing well doing the work that women do telling <laughs> telling the rest of us about ourselves and about life so if you're looking for something fun get yourself a glass of wine or a drink or whatever and sit down and queue up your IG live uh, and check out Keep It 100. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Those ladies are fantastic. So shouts out to them. And again, all the information you need to check that out will be in the show notes. So that is our podcast, but not really podcast spotlight of the week. I don't think I have anything else to plug for you guys. Um, you can catch out the show, obviously, anywhere that you listen to dope podcasts. Um, if you would like to connect with the show, you can do the show's Twitter or Instagram. That is at MurderVPod, M-U-R-D-E-R-V-E-E-P-O-D. Again, that's at MurderVPod, Instagram, Twitter. We love connecting with you. I love talking to you about murder and about anything else that you'd like to talk about. If you have a suggestion for something I should cover on the show, I would love to hear that. If you would like to be a guest on MurderVPod and, well, talk murder with me, then I would love to have you and reach out and we can do that as well. You can also catch me personally if you don't want to reach out to the show's Twitter or IG and just would like to talk to me, which essentially is the same thing because, well, it's a one-woman show over here. You can reach me at VJ underscore Burton, and that is as well on Twitter as on Instagram. I don't think there's anything else I have for you guys. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being patient with me as I try to find ways to become more consistent and get you shows every week. I look forward to getting better and better at this and us just really seeing how far we can take this and really enjoy true crime and talking about it. Um, I really love being able to do true crime Tuesdays with you all and I'm just looking forward to speaking with you and getting to know you and just I'm so happy to have each and every one of you as a part of the true crime tribe and if you could please like rate and subscribe to the show on um, Apple Podcasts um, you, or Spotify or wherever it is that you subscribe to Dope Podcast and get the word out. I want the True Crime Tribe to be huge, but if it's not, I just enjoy having you here with me to listen to me talk about something that I'm passionate about. Um, hopefully soon we'll be able to expand and maybe we'll do live streams or we'll do a YouTube page. I'm not entirely sure, but I don't want to put the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse. I think I've been talking so long, I'm delirious now. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves or, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater since we're using funny colloquialisms today. But I enjoy having each and every one of you here with me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being patient with me. And as always, you're listening to Murder V Wrote, and I am your host, V.